Amen. Thank you, Grant. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, this morning, I want to start by talking about the subject of judging. Everybody's favorite subject, right? Jesus' command not to judge others is perhaps the most widely quoted of all of his sayings and possibly the most abused statement that we see in the entire New Testament. Here's what Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He said, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So, So how do people take those verses and misuse them? Well, primarily, they will often throw them at you in order to silence you or anyone who dares to question a choice that they've made, or a lifestyle that they're living. It's sort of a, a weapon in, our, in their tool bag, even for unbelievers. It's their favorite verse in the New Testament. And they'll say, you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong. Jesus said so. So in their mind, that single statement, isolated from the immediate context and ripped out of the entire context of the New Testament, means that no one is allowed to express a moral opinion about anyone ever. That seems pretty dubious, doesn't it? So what do we know about the context of Jesus' statement there? Well, just a few verses later, Jesus instructs the people not to give what is holy to dogs and not to throw their pearls before swine, which raises the question, how does one follow his instruction if we're not allowed to identify and therefore judge who qualifies as a dog or a swine? And a little later in that same chapter, he gets even more specific. He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? They're wolves. And then he says, you will know them by their fruit. So there Jesus is telling us that we should examine things. We should judge, especially those who prophesy and teach. We should listen to what they say. We should look at their lives and we should, yeah, judge by the fruit that we see. So obviously, do not judge in Matthew 7 cannot mean never have an opinion about anything or or never declare what is right or wrong or never be able to discern what is moral or immoral. By the way, this may seem obvious that Scripture is full of objective truth, and if it's objectively true, whatever contradicts Scripture is false, and that too is a, a what? A judgment. I mean, are we allowed to call murder wrong? I mean, even the the most hardened unbeliever would say, yeah, of course we are. Well, guess what? That's passing a moral judgment. So the argument that we're not allowed to make judgments doesn't pass either the logic test or the scripture test. So then what did Jesus mean? Well, I count at least three qualifiers to what he intended to tell us. First, when you judge, judge rightly, he says. Judge rightly. Catch this. In John chapter 7, Jesus gives us a direct command to judge. He says, stop judging by mere appearances, by what you see on the outside, but instead judge correctly. So yes, when we judge, we have a responsibility to be accurate in that judgment. This is a a funny story, but it's a true story. There was a woman who was at O'Hare Airport in Chicago during a layover. Some of you have been there before. And she got a little hungry during this layover time, so she went to one of those kiosks and she bought a little package of, of cookies and she sat down in the airport and she She put the cookies on that little table that's between the seats, and she was near her gate waiting for her flight, and she picked up a magazine and started to read, and then she heard a little rustling noise coming from behind her, and she turned around and shocked to see a neatly dressed man eating some of her cookies. Not wanting to make a scene, she she sort of ignored it, and she was a little shocked by it, but then she... She took a cookie herself from the package and she ate it while she made eye contact with him to let her know that she knew that he was taking her cookies. She went back to reading, a minute or two passed, and suddenly more of the rustling, she turns around, he's doing it again. She can't believe it. So she grabs a handful of cookies, stuffs them in her mouth, only leaving only one left in the package, goes back to her magazine, hears the rustling again. This time turns around, and the guy has divided the cookie in two and pushed half towards her. So she ate the half, he ate the other half, he smiled at her, got up and left. And she's shocked about the audacity of this guy. And then she heard the gate attendant say that her flight was 
ready for boarding, and she opened up her purse and to grab her ticket, and what did she find? An unopened package of cookies. Those were his cookies. Imagine the embarrassment. She was taking cookies from him. So the point of this is, if you're going to judge someone, judge rightly. Judge rightly. Don't be superficial in your judgment, is what the text says. Don't assume motives. Don't judge based on hearsay. If you're going to judge, take all things into consideration, investigate it carefully, and Be cautious before you proclaim judgment or else you might find yourself bearing false witness against another. That's the first qualifier. The second one is this. Judge without hypocrisy. Don't judge hypocritically. In fact, that is the very context of the famous statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7. He goes on to say this. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the what in your own eye? This giant log. You hypocrite, he says, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's not that you can't judge at all. It's just that you better be careful not to condemn yourself as you do it. Before you form an opinion about somebody's character or pass judgment on their behavior, be, first, be sure to first examine your own life. And when you do, if you do that honestly before the Lord, you might find a log sitting there. Finally, the third qualifier is don't judge self-righteously. This was something the Pharisees did well. They were very confident in their own righteous position. And so from their lofty perch, they judged everybody else. But the scripture says that God is opposed to the proud. So if you're going to judge someone, approach the situation with great humility so that you don't find yourself slipping into that chair where only God ought to occupy. Now, providing we do this right, that we judge in these ways, Who are we supposed to judge? And this is one of those areas where Christians often get very confused. Who are we supposed to be judging in those ways? 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13 gives us a good indication of God's heart in this. And you probably know the context of this very famous chapter. There's sexual immorality happening in the church at Corinth in the first century. And Paul is absolutely livid that the church isn't doing something about it. He says this, I, want, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, important phrase, so-called brother, if he's an immoral person. Don't even eat with such a one. So Paul's talking about somebody who is inside the church, professing to know Christ, but is living in a moral lifestyle. For what have I, Paul says, to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those on the outside, God judges. You, Christians, remove the wicked man from among you. So it's not our job to run around pointing fingers and judging unbelievers who are outside the church. Those who are outside, God judges, Paul says. Our calling, as we've seen in Romans 13, is to love our neighbor, to love those outside the church. That is our harvest field. We don't point fingers, we love. Now, does that mean that we ignore all the sin in their life? That we just turn a blind eye to it? Of course not. We understand why they sin. We understand human nature and human depravity. And so we ought to expect our neighbors to sin without remorse. That's natural for them. But we don't hold them to a biblical standard. We don't say, why aren't you living by the standards of Scripture? Why? Well, first of all, they have not submitted to that standard. They have not recognized that standard as you and I have. And secondly, without the Holy Spirit, they never will. So we can't hold them to biblical standards. But those inside the church, that's different, isn't it? Those who profess to know and trust in Jesus, those are the folks we hold to a biblical standard. Those are the ones we judge. We call this, big word, accountability. We talk about it often. So as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, we're to judge one another inside the church. If there's a clear violation of scriptural mandates, the church has to take action to rid the church of that yeast that can infect the whole batch of dough. Now, God cares how we go about doing that. That's really the big point in judging. When we have somebody inside the church that requires judgment, we've got to be very careful. We've already talked about it, right? We don't do it superficially. We don't do it hypocritically. We don't do it self-righteously. 
And always we go gently and with love as our motivation. Always love. The goal is to turn your brother or your sister from the error of their ways, from their sins, so that they might be restored to fellowship with God and to fellowship with our fellow members. So that's sort of a brief outline on this issue of judging. Now, here's the question for this morning. What about judging a brother or sister over a matter that isn't specifically outlined in Scripture? Something we would call a disputable matter. What do we do then? So just to be clear, I'm not talking about essential doctrine. I'm not talking about essential Christian practices. Those things aren't up for grabs. Remember Paul in chapter 13 talked about some of those things. He gave us a brief list. He, he called them deeds of darkness. What were they? Carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and strife and jealousy. On those issues that are clear in Scripture, all Christians ought to agree. All Christians ought to judge accordingly. Why? Because the authority of Scripture says so. But again, what about things that aren't all that clear in the Bible? It's tricky, isn't it? Disputable matters. Disputable matters, guys, have been the source of church splits for hundreds of years. Even if the issue is really small, the fallout that can happen from disagreements and division over small things can be absolutely tragic. And so Paul's very concerned about this. So grab your Bibles. Let's look at it. Let's go to Romans 14. Can you believe we're in chapter 14? Man, the end is in sight after almost three years. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to do something really crazy today and next Sunday. Are you ready for this? This is going to blow your minds. We're going to cover a whole chapter in two Sundays. I know. Now, that's not a random you know, reason, there, there, there's actually a, a madness behind this. This entire chapter is really dedicated to one theme. And so while in other chapters in Romans, we've taken great pains to really slow down and look at every phrase so carefully and, and get super technical, because the chapter 14 covers really one theme, we're going to look at it with a much broader and much more practical approach. You'll see what I mean in just a second. But let's look at what Paul has to say now about this thing we call disputable matters. And listen, what he has to say about your and I are personal convictions. Verse 1. Now, accept, and that word in the Greek can also mean welcome or receive. Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, the Greek there gives all kinds of room for different types of translations. I've got them on the screen. You see the NAS, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The ESV says not to quarrel over his opinions. The CSB says don't argue about, there's that phrase, disputed matters. And then the NIV sort of combines it all without quarreling over disputable matters. But you get a sense for what Paul's addressing right out of the gate here in verse 1. Verse 2, one person has faith or believes that he may eat all things, that he can eat anything. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, I'm going to resist putting a joke in there. <laughs> I'm going to resist because I love a good steak. Some of you plant-based folks, I get it. We'll come back to that. Verse 3, the one who eats everything is not to regard with contempt, or he's not to despise or look down upon the one who does not eat, the one who abstains. And the one who does not eat or abstains is not to judge the one who does eat, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another, Paul asks? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. I'll give you some more Interesting translations of that. You see the NASB there. ESV says one person esteems one day as better than another. The CSB, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. In the NIV, one person considers one day, interesting word, more sacred than any other. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That's an important statement. Verse 6, he who observes the day as special, observes it for the Lord. 
The intent there is he observes it in honor of the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. By the way, the NIV, this is where we find you know, translations built or interpretation built in the translations. The NIV adds the word eats meat there. The word meat is nowhere in the Greek. But they've looked down at verse 21, seen that meat is an issue, and they've inserted it. That's why the NIV is not quite as literal, should I say. So he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat or abstains, and he gives thanks to God. Verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Right? Everything is for him, correct? Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. Verse 9, for to this end, or for this very reason, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Why do you despise him? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay. Do you think this was an important issue for Paul? Think about this. We just got through chapter 13, and he spent seven verses on the issue of church and state. He spent three verses on the issue of love. He spent another four verses on what it means to live godly in light of Christ's return. And now he's about to spend 35 verses on this matter of disputable things and personal convictions. Not just chapter 14, but halfway through chapter 15. I'd say this was important, at least in Paul's mind. Now, to understand this passage and all its nuances, we've got to do a little historical review. We've got to stop for a second and try to set the scene just a wee bit. Who is Paul writing to, and what is the context that he's writing in? Again, we're talking about somewhere near uh, the year AD 56. It's been about 23 years since the resurrection, and the church at this moment that he's writing is going through a massive transition. Not only is the church spreading to the west and away from Jerusalem, But it was transitioning from being what was originally an all-Jewish church to a predominantly Gentile church. And I know it's hard for us in this day and age to understand the the sort of the battle between Jew and Gentile. It was a huge problem. Huge. And this created a slew of difficulties. New converts who had come out of the Jewish faith were having a hard time figuring out, how do I make sense of this, this new faith that I have? I mean, is it supposed to be an extension of my my Judaism? If so, shouldn't I continue to observe the traditions of Judaism? Shouldn't I observe the Sabbath? Shouldn't I pay attention to the dietary laws? Shouldn't I, you know, observe the feasts and the festivals that we so often celebrated? For generations, those things have been a a precious part of their families' lives, a valued part of their worship. And so it was hard for many early Jewish Christians to think that God now wanted them to abandon all of that and worship as the Gentiles do. And so now the church in the West is being dominated by people without any religious background whatsoever, and this made things even more complicated. What about Gentiles? Should they be circumcised? Should they now watch what they eat so they're not defiled? Should they observe the Sabbath? And if so, should the Sabbath switch from Saturday to Sunday? All kinds of questions. Guys, I don't think we can fully grasp how hard this transition was and how difficult it was for apostles like Paul to sort of navigate all of this and try to hold the church together in unity. There's no question that there were the makings of a church controversy in AD 56. Some Christians thinking one way about things and others disagreeing. Some Christians insisting on certain practices and others saying, no, 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 those things aren't necessary anymore. And each one of them, each group looking down on the other, judging each other, condemning each other, because they see it as a spiritual failure. Now, with the way that Paul writes here in chapter 14, it seems clear to most scholars that there was specifically something going on in the church of Rome. There was a division happening. That's why he spends so much time on it. There are these two groups of people there, and what Paul wants to do is heal the division and bring unity. So what were the two groups? Well, 
we see them here. We have, first of all, this group that Paul identifies as those who are weak in faith. That's in verse 1. They're weak in the faith. And in verse 2, he says, he who is, is weak. Osteneo is the Greek verb here for weak. Not only can it mean weak, but it can mean poor. It can mean needy. It can even mean sick. This is how Paul describes them. The implication is that there's this group of people in the church at Rome who in their spiritual walk, there's something lacking. That they need to be strengthened in some way. And those on the other side of this weak condition, people we would you know, assume would be called strong in the faith. They're implied in the passage we read, but they're not specifically named. Now they will be if you flip over to chapter 15, verse 1, you'll see that they're specifically named there. 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So really important to notice there, which group does Paul identify with? The strong group. We who are strong, he says, bear with those who are lacking. Bear with those who are in need of strength. And what were the issues that separated the weak from the strong? Well, in the passage, we see three things. Number one, the strong ate all kinds of foods. They ate anything, including what? Meat. While the weak ate just vegetables. That's number one. Secondly, the strong made no distinction between days on the calendar. Ah, they're all the same. Well, the weak said, no, 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 there's certain days that are special above all others. And third, the strong drank wine, and the weak said, no, thanks, we'll abstain from that. Now, there's good historical evidence that tells us that the division between weak and strong literally parallel what I just described, the difference between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, the difference between having no spiritual background versus all these traditions and loyalties from the past. Now, here's what's interesting. Does the Mosaic law instruct Jews to abstain from wine and meat? No, it doesn't. But here's, this is sort of the fallout from the Pharisees of the first century. They'd add, added so many traditions on top of the law during this period of time that any scrupulous Jew in the first century would have said, you know what, if I can't be absolutely sure that meat hasn't been you know, prepared in a kosher fashion, it'd be better for me just to avoid all of it. Just not going to do it. Just abstain completely. Same thing with the wine. Well, what if it's been, you know, this, this pagan tradition of, of a libation, an offering of wine to the gods. If there's any possibility that that's happened, I will just say no completely. Abstain from the wine completely. So the weak in the Roman church were Jewish Christians who still felt bound by these, by these laws, by these traditions, by these ritual requirements. And again, before we judge them too harshly, as we speak about judging, if we stop long enough to put ourselves in their sandals, can't you understand why this was such a struggle? This idea of abandoning all of these traditions. You have to understand, Jews in particular, this idea of generations. This is how my fathers walked and my father's fathers. And it's been passed down to me and now I'm supposed to just toss it all. This would have been very, very difficult. The other group, the strong group, would have been mainly the Gentile believers. Again, they don't carry any religious baggage into their new faith, right? And, and that group, the strong group, probably included certain Jews like Paul who understood their freedom now that they had in Christ. They understood that Christ had come to fulfill the law and to rid of us all these ritual requirements. So those are the two parties, the two camps in this particular dispute. Now let's look at how Paul says we should handle these types of situations. It's so important to notice this. First of all, he says both sides in this, this dispute are tempted to sin against the other. So just stop and think about that. Now, already as I say this, some of you guys are playing, the, you're doing the mind exercise, and it's a good one. Which group am I in? And, that, and that's good. But understand what Paul's saying. Both sides are tempted to sin against the other. So, so it's not like, well, I'm part of this group, so I'm free today. I don't have to worry about this. No. Both sides have temptations. Paul writes understanding the temptations that are present. The danger for the strong believer is to look at his weaker brother with contempt, he says. To look down upon them and say, hey, why don't you get it already? Lighten up. You don't need all those rules and regulations. Okay? And the danger for the weak believer is to look at the stronger brother and say, 
Have you looked at your life? You need more rules and regulations. You need to be more separate from the world. Both groups were under a great temptation to judge one another harshly. And sadly, in the process of that, divide the body of Christ. Now again, Paul agrees in principle with the strong group. This is what makes this passage so fascinating. Paul identifies with and agrees that it's the strong group that is theologically correct in this debate. They are correct. In Christ, we have the freedom to enjoy food and drink without guilt. We have the freedom to observe holidays or not. But catch this, Paul's primary thrust in this text is not to point out who's right and who's wrong. And that frustrates some of us. I'm one of those. Like, well, hold on a second. Let's fix this. But Paul's not trying to fix it. He's not trying to say, you're right and you're... He's not going to say to the weak group, hey, pull it together. You're in the wrong. Get it right. He doesn't do that here. It's very interesting. What a great lesson for us. Not everything in the life of the church gets fixed on the spot. Sometimes it requires time and patience and grace to see people learn and grow and mature. So Paul doesn't call for the instant fix. Patience and grace are required among God's people in God's house. I think that's a great praise. Because Paul's primary concern here is unity in the face of differing opinions. He knows people are going to disagree. We still need unity. Drop down to verse 19 for a second and look what he says there. Sort of looking forward to next week. But look what he says. He says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Amen and amen, right? If the church could grasp and practice that, how much more beautiful would the church be to the world? True? So we pursue those things. We we intentionally go after those things that make for peace and build each other up, even if we disagree on non-essential matters. Now, Having said that, are there things to go to war over? Absolutely. Okay, so we want to get this balance right. There are times when peace and unity cannot be maintained because essential things are at stake. Essential doctrine, essential Christian practice. In those cases, we have to stand firm in the battle. But knowing when to fight and when to allow for Time and patience and growth is so critical to a healthy church and to a healthy believer. On the one hand, there's too many churches out there right now who are chasing culture. And they are throwing out essentials out the window as if it doesn't matter any longer. But on the other end of the spectrum are churches that are reacting to that in unhealthy ways. And they're beginning to fight over everything. And so we pray constantly as an elder team, may the Lord grant us wisdom in finding the proper balance on those things. It's tricky. To both groups, Paul's instruction is clear. Stop passing judgment on the convictions of the other. Instead, he says, accept or welcome them into the fellowship. Accept them. Welcome them. And do it for the right reason. Look back at verse 1 again. Do this for the right reason. I love the way he puts this. He says, accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. In other words, hey, don't bring him in so that you can, you can rag on him. Hey, come on in so that I can point out all your weaknesses and failures and sort of slap you around. No, don't just tolerate him for the, for the purpose of your own little game that you're playing. Welcome him as a brother in Christ. And, and by the way, that raises another interesting question. Just an aside this morning, because as I was studying this week, something just kept nagging on the, the back of my brain. So as the teaching pastor here, it's my job to help you interpret situations in the Bible that at first glance might look contradictory or at, the, at best a little bit confusing. Judging is one of those things. We can get all messed up in our head about it. But there's another thing happening here, a second similar issue. Here's the question I have for you. Maybe you've already thought about this. How is it that Paul can say, welcome this group of people into the fellowship of the church as true believers while they're still holding on to the things of the law and the old traditions of Judaism. How is that, how is that possible? Because in Galatians 5, he doesn't do that, does he? In Galatians 5, he tells a group of Jews in the church that holding on to those things is akin to being subject to a yoke of slavery. 
And then he goes further. He says, if you receive circumcision, for example, you're now obligated to keep what? The whole law. And if you're going to try to keep the whole law, he says, you've severed yourself from Christ. You've fallen from grace. But he doesn't say that to the Roman believers. In Colossians 2, there's a similar statement. This idea of keeping the traditions of food and drink and festivals. There, Paul calls it philosophy and empty deception, but not in Rome. So why the double standard? Why are the Jewish believers in Rome allowed to graciously cling to their old ways? Well, the answer is found in the purity of the gospel. Paul declares those Galatians to be heretics that are cut off from Christ for this reason. Because they were trusting, they were putting their trust in faith in Jesus plus the traditions. In other words, they were adding works to it. They were actually trusting in their good works according to their, their, their Jewish background for salvation. And in that process, they're perverting the gospel. In Colossians, Paul's addressing a form of asceticism where false teachers were going around saying, look, if you abstain from this or that, then you're going to have a greater standing with God. Again, that's a perversion of the gospel. So these are very different situations. Hear this. The Jewish Christians in Rome were not trying to add anything to the gospel. Yes, they were wrestling with holding on to some of these old traditions, but they weren't trusting in those things. They had and were trusting in Christ alone for salvation. How do we know that? Paul doesn't accuse them of sinning here. And we know how severe Paul would attack somebody if they tried to pervert the gospel, right? Just read the book of Galatians. He says they're not sinning. In fact, look at, look at verse 6. And look how Paul interprets the motivation of this weak group. This is, this is enlightening, you guys. He who observes the day, in other words, observes certain feasts or festivals, observes it for the Lord or in honor of the Lord. Drop down a little bit further. And he who eats not, he who abstains from certain foods, for the Lord he doesn't eat and he gives thanks to God. So Paul seems to indicate here that these practices that are happening in Rome, although they're not required for a Christian, that's an important statement, they're not required, they were still God-focused acts of worship done from a heart of thankfulness. These folks were not sinning as the people in Galatians and Colossians were. Is that hard to, to grab hold of? The weak group are making choices that they believe best honored God. And if that's what they believed in their heart, then that is still a good, well-motivated choice based on what? Personal convictions. I am personally convicted that I need to continue to celebrate this festival. Or I need to not drink wine or not eat that meat. That's my personal conviction. So this blows our minds, especially justice people and people who like to get everything figured out. We have to hold these thing, two things in intention that Paul's talking about here. On the one hand, good motivation on the other hand, still not God's best, still incomplete, still immature, but motivated well. Does that sort of blow your mind? It should. These folks were true believers. They were just struggling, still clinging on to these old traditions. They hadn't yet acquired the knowledge or the wisdom or the understanding to say, I'm free in Christ. Not yet. And so Paul is particularly gracious with them and patient with them in his instructions. Make sense? Now, speaking of convictions, can I tell you what I think the most surprising part of this passage is? It's at the end of verse 5. It's this statement. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Every person should be fully convinced in their own mind. Why is that surprising? If I had been Paul, I, I would have been terrible, done a terrible job, by the way. But had I been an apostle like Paul in that day, I would have written something like this. Hey, both of you guys, you weak people, you strong people, knock it off for the purpose of promoting peace. Quit holding on to opinions. Just let them go. Agree in the Lord. Be at peace. But that's not what Paul says. This is fascinating. He does the opposite. He says, both weak and strong, be fully convinced in your mind on all these disputable matters. Wow. Doesn't that seem like it makes the problem worse, not better? Like Paul's like, you know, there's a fire burning in Rome. I'm going to pour some gas on it instead of some water. Everybody take a really strong stand. Really? But I love that. 
Because these disputable matters, listen, they're not inconsequential. Understand that. When we're talking about Christian practice, these are big deals. They're not essential deals, but they're still consequential issues. And they ought to be treated in that fashion. Take a stand. Have a conviction. Listen, don't be squishy about these things, is what he's saying. Do your research. Study the issue. Be informed. Ask a mentor or a discipler. Consult a commentary. Read sermons on this topic by good theologians. Whatever it takes, but come to a conclusion in your mind. Take a stand. Have a conviction. Don't be like, eh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. That's what Paul's saying here. And then after everybody has taken a stand and everybody feels strongly about something, then love each other. (laughs) Can we do that? Yeah, everybody has a strong opinion. Praise the Lord. Hopefully it's informed. But then love each other through those disagreements because people are going to disagree. Through it and in spite of it, love one another. Wow. That's pretty cool. Now, what are these things? Convi- what are convictions? They're just personally, strongly held beliefs. What they do is they draw the line between what I will do and what I won't do as an exercise of my freedom in Christ. But here's the thing. It's not really what I, can I do, it's what should I do. I know if you're a parent, you've said this to your kids. I, my kids would tell you, I've, I've said this a hundred times. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Right? That's his personal convictions. Not what can I do, but should I do it? Now, to guide us in this, there's a really great verse in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, and it consists of two statements. I'll put it on the screen. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Okay? All things are okay, but not all things are profitable. I'm telling you, if you're a young person here today, you're in your 20s, man, post that on your mirror or something. Seriously, you might have the freedom to do it. Doesn't mean it's profitable. Doesn't mean it's beneficial for you. Make sense? So I can do this or that. It's not forbidden by scripture, but listen, knowing myself, would this be helpful? Ah, got to know our own heart, right? Got to know our, our, own, the, our own temptations where we're vulnerable. Knowing myself, would it be helpful? Will it contribute positively to my spiritual life and to the life of others or not? Have a conviction based on those important questions. Here's the second statement then. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Ooh, how, how, how incredibly practical is that for today? All kinds of freedom, guys, but you cannot step into a situation where something is now going to control you or master you. Again, I can do this. It's not forbidden, But is participating in it going to lead me into some type of unhealthy dependence? Is it going to take me into a place of idolatry? Think in terms of your technology, your movies, your music, all the different things that you engage in. Is it profitable for you? Might it master you? Take those things into consideration as you develop your own personal convictions. Guys, this is important stuff. Careful study and reflection of your own heart and what Scripture says ought to go into every personal conviction that you have. Be fully convinced, Paul says. So let's bridge bridge the gap now. Let's bridge the gap from 1st century to 21st century. Are there any disputable matters in the church today? What are some of them? You know what is funny? You might be surprised to find out we're very much like first century Rome. Food and drink? Any debates? How much attention should a Christian pay to his diet? What is a healthy diet that honors God? How much food is acceptable in a way that honors God? Have you thought that through? Should a Christian drink alcohol, or would it be safer to abstain? Is it profitable? Might it master you? And if you do decide that you can drink without crossing the line into drunkenness, which is a clear biblical mandate, are we talking just just wine or beer? Or is a good margarita okay? Or one of those foofy drinks with the umbrella in it? I, I don't know. 
Or, or, or something harder. Some of you like whiskey or tequila or vodka, whatever it might be. Guys, be fully convinced in your own mind based on what we just read in 1 Corinthians 6. Have a stand. It's important. Certain days. Which, which, which holidays are we supposed to be observing? Which ones? Are we supposed to boycott Christmas? Because I, I, you know, I, I know some people say, well, there's, there's too, much parallel, too many parallels with, with pagan stuff. Should we boycott Christmas? Grant, don't have a heart attack, wherever you are. I, and, and that's a thing. That's a thing in the church, boycotting Christmas, right? The tree is a pagan symbol, all those things. Have you done the research? Have you, have you become fully convinced? Do we Santa or not Santa? That's a big one, right? How about this? N- knowing the revelry associated with these holidays, St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo. Are, are we supposed to observe those or not? Is, is that forbidden or, or is that disputable? Do you have a conviction on that? And if so, why? Could you justify that? What about Halloween? Can Halloween just be pure fun, or is it always, always evil? Be fully convinced in your own mind. We're not that much different than the Roman church, are we? Food, drink, and days. It's amazing. How about other convictions? I, I, get, I wrote down just a partial list. You could probably come up with more. To whom do we entrust our kids in school? Public school or only Christian private school? Or neither, homeschool. Of course, duh. I, right, we have strong opinions on those things, right? Be fully convinced in your own mind. Study it, reflect on it, have a position, be able to defend it. What kind of music is acceptable to the Christian ear? Can I listen to Metallica? Or Taylor Swift? Can't believe I put those two in the same sentence. <laughs> or Drake? Or Luke Bryan? Or Thelonious Monk. I mean, there's all kinds of types of music, right? Or do I have to stick with, let's see, either Mozart or the Gettys <laughs> as a Christian? Be fully convinced in your own mind. What category of movies should a Christian watch? And I'm not talking about just at the theater. I'm talking about in, in the home as well. What kind of movies should we put our eyes on? Are all R-rated movies made alike? Is there a difference between going to see a gory slasher film versus going to see Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan? Wisdom is required, isn't it? What's appropriate for my eyes and my ears? Be fully convinced in your own mind. What should a Christian wear to church on Sundays for worship? Suits. At least a tie, Ross says. (laughs) Dwayne says. Come on, man. Let's be respectful to the Lord. Plaid shirts. <laughs> right? Dresses for the ladies. Come on, dresses. Or long skirts at the least if you're really going to be respectful and honor God. Be fully convinced in your own mind. That's the point. Take a stand. Don't, don't treat it inconsequentially. Don't do it well, everybody else is doing this. No. Study it. Research it. Pray about it. Check your heart. Be fully convinced in your own mind. What Bible translation should a Christian use? The most literal one or the most dynamic readable one? Be fully convinced in your own mind. Should a Christian set aside Sunday as a type of Sabbath? Does our obligation end on Sunday at 1230? Or is it an all-day thing that we just do things that honor God? So no sports, no television, no movies, whatever. Or do we have the freedom to do that. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Guys, there's so many of these things, right? Disputable matters. Are there errors to be made on all sides of those questions? Absolutely. This is what we need to avoid, right? The weak in faith create all kinds of unnecessary standards for themselves. They're not required by the Christian faith. They tend to abstain from everything. And it's interesting. They say, they say no to so many things that they usually think they're the strong ones. Ever met somebody like that? They abstain from everything. They, they tighten the boundaries and they think they're the strong ones, but Paul disagrees. They also tend to press their convictions on everybody else. 
We've got to be careful about that, right? That's part of what Paul's saying here. We don't press our personal convictions on non-essential matters onto other people. Sometimes we do it in very ungentle ways. There's an old joke that goes like this. The abstainer's out there. The abstainer is someone who lives in mortal terror that someone somewhere is having a good time. That may be unfair. But Paul says to the weak, here in verse 3, the one who doesn't eat, you abstainers out there, you're not to judge the one who does eat, for God has accepted him. Interesting. What about the strong group? Is there potential for error there? Absolutely. What happens when the so-called strong person takes the freedom that they have in Christ and subjects it to abuse? Just abuses that freedom. When they mistake the grace of God for a license to sin, and they end up looking more like the world than they do a believer. That's a problem. When they lack the discernment to stay away from things that are unprofitable for them, and they they race headlong into it, stumble into sin, and go, oh, but I have freedom in Christ. That's a problem. They've not been wise. When they lack care and seriousness in the choices that they're making. And to those of you who fancy yourself the strong ones because you enjoy this freedom in Christ, Paul says to you also in verse 3, be careful, the one who eats everything, you guys, is not to regard with contempt the one who abstains. Do not judge your brother because of his personal convictions. Friends, wherever you stand on these things, two principles in summary that come out of this. Number one, be fully convinced of your position. Based on sound research, the study of Scripture, the knowledge of your heart, lots of investigation, and an ability to defend it, number one. Number two, welcome and love those who've come to a different conclusion, because some will. Some will. And maintain peace and unity in the body. So, as I wrap up, I want you to remember this truth. There's always going to be people in good Bible-believing churches who disagree on secondary matters. That is a fact. Get used to it. And so notice one more time, Paul doesn't say that all Christians have to agree on these things. He didn't even demand that the weak correct what they're missing. Although I have to think, in the privacy of his room, he hopes that they will, right? He hopes that at some point they will come to the conclusion that they have more freedom than they're currently living out. But what we all share, no matter what your convictions are, is God's welcome. You see this at the end of verse 3, God's welcome, for God has accepted him. Proslambano in the Greek. Very important word. It doesn't just mean tolerate. It means to take someone in. This is what God has done for us. Whether you're more of an abstainer or more of a freedom in Christ guy, God has welcomed you. He has invited you in. You are family because you trust in him alone. So we ought to treat each other that way. Who are we of all people to treat others with contempt or to judge them unfairly in the body of Christ? If Christ says they belong, they belong. Amen? Now, it's true. They might need more knowledge to get things right. They might need more teaching, more instruction, more mentoring, more discipling, more time. More time. We're all at different stages in our spiritual walks, aren't we? Some of us have been Christians for 30, 40 years. Some of us are brand new believers. We're at different stages. Time and patience and grace are required. By the way, does that mean that those who are strong in the faith never can go to the weaker brother and say, hey, let me help you out with this? Absolutely not. That's actually, that's actually part, and we'll find, we'll find this out in the next couple of weeks, that's part of our responsibility as those who see ourselves as strong is to go to our weaker brother and to help them out. And there is a time and a place for that. It's called discipleship. But here's the key. God cares how we do that. And it starts with building relationship, a platform where we can have deep conversations. We don't go rushing in and go, hey, I'm one of those strong people. I barely know you, but let me tell you where you're failing. That's not going to go well. We build relationship. We build mutual trust. We're careful to judge rightly. We're careful not to be hypocrites. We're careful to go in humility. It's the motivation and the spirit of that process of helping each other that God is really concerned about, and we see it in this passage. One last thing. This is not an easy thing to end with, but it's important. There are warnings here. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or fall, and he will stand, 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. What's the warning here? Guys, if we sinfully judge someone whom God has received over non-essential items, over personal convictions, it's offensive to God. Because what's happened there is we put ourselves in the seat that only God belongs in. Remember, God has promised that he who began a good work in every one of his children will faithfully complete that in not our timing, but in his timing. He will complete that work. And that weaker brother will one day stand in God's presence and he will be declared righteous for one reason, because God is able to make him stand. Trust his sovereignty in that. Look at also verse 10, another warning. But you, why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself. Paul's point here, it's, it's, I would call it uncomfortably clear. God is the judge. God is the judge. And before him, each of us will give an account someday, including an account of how we treated one another in the body of Christ and whether we brought division to his bride. That that ought to be a sobering thought that someday we'll give an account. How did we love each other in the body? Did we bring harm to the bride of Christ by by unnecessarily creating division because we judged unfairly or we judged hypocritically or we judged self-righteously? Let's let God be God. Trust that he's going to complete his sovereign work. Our job is to seek to love and to welcome one another in the fellowship here at Oak Hill. Man, there's so much to consider, right? I hope I've filled your hearts and your minds with all kinds of stuff to pray about this week, and there's more coming next week. Next week, we have to talk about, in all of this context, how do we not cause our brother to trip and fall, to stumble? And that'll lead us into some more questions. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for the practical, practical nature of this passage. Lord, we are challenged constantly by by looking at the early church and seeing how the apostles dealt with these really difficult issues. And Father, you know Oak Hill very, very well. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the things that that we struggle with here, if there's division or there's disagreement, God. And so, Lord, my prayer today for this church, for me, for my brothers and sisters, is that you would guard us from this type of disagreement that leads to division that you would help us to receive each other well, that you would help us to love each other in the midst of disagreement over non-essentials, that we would love each other enough to be able to sit down, look each other in the eye and say, hey, because I love you, because we're, we're members at this church, let's work through this together. How sweet it is when brothers and sisters live in harmony. Help us to do that here at Oak Hill, Lord. It's all for your glory, Lord. We want you to be glorified in this church. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.